Hey family and Hope Covenant friends, this is Doug. Last Sunday we had an incredible guest speaker, Kevin Butcher. Kevin is a pastor from Detroit, Michigan, and he is a friend and a mentor of mine. I met him a few years ago at one of our uh, Evangelical Covenant pastor conferences, and I've been able to spend time with him a few times since, as well as lots and lots of phone calls. Kevin recently uh, transitioned out of the church where he'd been in the inner city for 14 years. He wrote a book called Choose and Choose Again, The Brave Act of Returning to God's Love. I wish I could buy this book and put it in the hands of every person in our church. It's really that incredible of a book. Uh, You're going to hear a message here from Kevin that is very similar to the one he gave at Hope Covenant last Sunday. However, our recording didn't work. We had some technical difficulties, and so we are taking this message from another church where he did a very similar message, and so that's why maybe some things will sound a little different than what you would have heard Sunday morning, but the essence is the same, and I really wanted to make sure that our people here got a chance to uh, listen to or repeat listening to this incredible talk from my friend, my mentor, Kevin Butcher. Here we go. I'd like to talk to you this morning about uh, from some of Jesus' uh, last words to his followers. And as you know, the last words are usually the most important words that someone speaks. And he's speaking these words in John 13, the beginning of that great section that goes from John 13 through John 17 called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, and at the end of John 17, the beginning of John 18, he's taken away to the cross, of course, uh, to, to his, his passion on his way to the cross. And so uh, basically the context is in John 13, he's saying to the 11 of the 12, because Judas is already gone, he's saying, um, I'm leaving, you're staying. And if I'm going to have any presence on the planet, it's going to come through you. And this is what um, I'm asking you to be about. And this is what he says, John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you can't give away what you haven't received. So hold on to that phrase just for a moment. We'll come back to it. That you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. You know, we can Google evangelism and you'll come up with 250,000 websites and all kinds of different strategies about how, how to win people to Christ. But actually, and I'm not trying to be coy, Jesus basically said, all of that is good, but it's the gravy. This is the potatoes right here. You only need one website. It's the website of Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, what you got to do is love so radically in the body of Christ as I have loved you that the whole world may not believe, but they'll know. Our evangelism strategies will touch a few. And and in every war, I mean, every uh, command has to give up a few troops. You have a few casualties. And so... You know, our beach evangelism, our Easter pageants where, you know, you've got Jesus rising from the dead and on wires and whatnot, and everybody gets a, a thrill. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I love it when people are creative enough to do that kind of a piece. And so a few people will come to Christ. But I think sometimes we think, hey, 50 came to Christ when, when Christ said you could have had the whole world. You could have at least had the whole world knowing. In fact, he goes on in John 17, and he says, if you will love like that, to the point that you'll stay together, that you'll be one, so that you're not divided into Latino churches and Asian churches and African-American churches and Caucasian churches and Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches, but that you're all one. Jesus says, Father, if you would help them to love 
like the, the, the way that I've loved them to the point that they are one, the whole world will not only know that they're with me, they'll know that you sent me. And we think we have to have the answer to every apologetic question that a non-believer has. If we, we can't answer the question of the problem of pain, if we don't really know what kind of a fish Jonah got swallowed by, or if we don't really understand creationism or you know, how the world could be old and young at the same time or whatever, that we can't lead people to Christ. Jesus said, if we'll love to the point that we stay together and show something that the world is longing for but can't find. And that's healing for all the relational divide in the world. that has been there since the garden when, the, you know, here's Adam and Eve. They're naked and not ashamed. They're one. They're in unity. And then the fall happens, and on the way out of the garden, Adam's going, it was that woman you gave me. And so the division began. And by chapter 4, you've got one of their sons bashing in the head of the other son with a rock. And on and on it has gone. So that today we've got racial division and gender division and political division. Are you kidding me? And family division. And the world is simply looking for the, the thing that Jesus came to offer. He said, the sign that the kingdom of God has come and that the curse has reversed is the body of Christ that loves in such a radically unconditional way that they stay together and show the world that there's healing for their mess. Um, it's fascinating that uh, Philip Yancey, I think it was in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells a story of talking to a Hindu scholar. The Hindu scholar said, we can reproduce in Christianity any miracle uh, that you guys can come up with except one. And Philip Yancey said what I would have said. He said, oh, it's the resurrection. You guys can't raise folks from the dead. And they go, oh, no, we can do that. In fact, if you study Hinduism and you study the Vedic literatures, you'll see that what you and I might call, from our Western mindset, maybe uh, mythological literature, they would call historiography, and they have resurrection stories uh, about some of their gods uh, in their literature. He said, no, it's not the resurrection. It's that Galatians 3 thing where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Barbarian, Scythian, Colossian goes on to say, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. We're all one in Christ. He said, in Hinduism, we have to understand we're divided into 5,000 different divisions. If we ever saw the kind of love that produced that unity, we would know that the true God was in the house. Interesting, Jesus said those words first 2,000 years ago. So, I, I, I mean, I'm an older brother now. I've been around. I've preached all over the world just like Bill has. I've been to all different kinds of communities of faith, all different kinds of denominations. I think we're finally starting to get it, that we don't have to come up with another gimmick. Anything that we do that is really, really cool is, is on top of what we must do. We must show the world that we don't just have words, you know, step one, step two, step three. Here's the four spiritual laws. We don't just have content. We don't just have dogma. We've got something that really will heal us. And we're living proof that it can heal us. Um, and that is the love of Christ. We're starting, I think. I think we're starting. I think we're starting to get that. By the way, I don't know why I feel compelled to say this. The racial wound in our country today you know who's primarily to blame for the racial wound that continues in our country today? The Church of Jesus Christ. We keep waiting for some political party to save us. We keep waiting for somebody to write a book, some seminar to come along where we can just kind of educate ourselves out of hatred and, big, bigotry, hatred and bigotry and, you know, stuff that's been passed down from generation to generation. Jesus said, if we will receive his love 
and know how deeply we're loved, that there's nobody that we won't love like he's loved us. So I think, I think we're starting to get that. But here's where my experience has been. We're still wrestling. What we're still often secretly struggling with is the part where Jesus says, as I have loved you. Why do we think that everybody that comes to church just knows, that they know anything, they know that God loves them? Just let me ask you to be gut level honest today for just a minute. If I could have a personal audience with you this morning and I could just look you in the eye and say, do you know that God loves you? And, and, if you, and I'm not talking about do you know a Bible verse that says that God loves you? I'm talking about do you experience the love of God? Love is not just meant to be known about in proposition. It's meant to be felt and experienced. What would you say? I mean, if I, if I um, asked my 34-year-old daughter this morning, mother of three, who, uh, I mean, that kid, th- this was the kid that, you know, when I would come home from the church or whatever, she would s- sit by the window and, and uh, cry out, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. I can't even think about it today without crying. And um, so I just love this little girl. But if I asked her today uh, as a grown woman, how do you know that your daddy loves you? back then and even today. And she said, well, one time when I was seven years old, you were on some kind of a mission trip or something, but you made sure it was my birthday and you were going to be gone, so you sent me a card. At the bottom of the card, it says, I'm your daddy and I love you. So what I did with that card is I just saved it all these years and I put it, I carried it around with me in my purse or in my, my, my backpack so that when I'm ever in a place where I wonder if you love me or not, I just take it out, I read it, and it says right there, daddy loves me. I would know, I mean, nothing about the daddy-daughter dances, nothing about the movies we would go to together, nothing about the birthday parties, and nothing about the embraces and the hugs and the sitting and watching TV and the wrestling and the tickling and the way you cried on my shoulder um, in every grade all the way up until uh, marrying your husband. Nothing about, I would know that if the only way she knew that I loved her is that she could read it somewhere, that our relationship was in trouble. And yet somehow in evangelical Christianity, we think because we can point to it on a printed page that that's enough. I got to tell you today, one of the reasons the world is not coming to Christ is we're trying to love without knowing deep in our experience that we're loved. Can you imagine getting out into the spiritual battle where the war is waging hot and we're trying to call upon ideologies instead of knowing that we have a father who is embracing him, us with his, his arms of love. I was reading just recently about a little girl in the Boxer Rebellion. She was nine years old, as the story goes, and she was uh, standing there one day when the communist soldiers came up and they said to her, either deny Christ or we're going to blow you away. And I, I think it was a missionary that was somehow off to the side observing this. And the soldiers began to fire as this little nine-year-old girl raised her hands to heaven and started to sing in her language, Jesus loves me, this I know. See, we'll do a lot for somebody we believe in or for something that we believe in. We will literally die for someone that we love. Do you know this morning that he loves you? 
Just a bit about my own story that will contextualize this for you. I, I trusted Christ when I was five years old. I grew up in a Christian home. A Christian home. I mean, we were, I guess you would say we were doctrinally sound. We were pre-trib, pre-mill, blah, blah, blah. But we were also jacked up. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm... You can, you can be a saved person and be really jacked up emotionally and psychologically and relationally. And... Uh, so I learned early on that you got love by performing, and so I became the star youth group guy, and I just performed. I hope you don't mind me saying it this way. I performed the hell out of Christianity. And I'm not saying a lot of it wasn't as sincere. It was as sincere as whatever I had to give. And um, then I went off to a Christian university and played college football, became an All-American. Looking back now, I realize I wasn't all that good, but I had so much of that jacked-up stuff from my background inside that I just hated on the person across from me and took it out on them and somebody made me an all-American for that um, but of course by the time I stopped playing football I didn't know what to do with all that mess then I went to Dallas Seminary I'd taken a few years of Greek in uh, college taking Latin in high school so by the time I got to the end of my Dallas Seminary um, days which was they were wonderful days part of which we spent here at, at uh, Richland slash Wood Creek with you guys. Um, I had five and a half years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin. Man, I knew this thing inside and out. I knew the verses. I knew the Greek words. I knew all the possibilities of the exegesis of the passages. And yet, even as a graduate and then a successful pastor... The church I was pastoring when I had my greatest, my first crisis that opened up this wound to me of not knowing that I was loved. I was pastoring a church that was on its way to 2,000 people. So whatever I was touching with my performance-oriented, driven Christianity was turning to gold. I think it was fool's gold, but at least it looked golden on the outside. Deep down inside, to quote Brennan Manning, I was like a travel agent handing out brochures to places I'd never been. Like a travel agent going, you know, I want you to look at Tahiti. Tahiti is such a great, look at the beaches. Have you ever been there? No, but look at the pictures. I knew all the Greek words for love. And I could, you know, my mom said I came out of the womb, you know, flapping my jaw. So I could, you know, give an illustration of the love of God and make you cry. And that you would begin to believe that you were loved. But if you asked me if I knew that I was loved, I really didn't know. There were some signs in my journey um, of that emptiness that I didn't know were signs back, back then. First decade and a half of my marriage, I was just so filled with rage and I took it out of my, my best friend in ways that I regret to this day. And then there were other kinds of signs. I'd sit down with my three daughters, Andrea, Leanne, and Caroline, and come home from the church some days, and I'd sit down and we'd watch this guy called Mr. Rogers. You ever watch Mr. Rogers? And uh, we would sit there and he would recite this poem you know, my girls are hanging all over me. You know, there's one up in my head, you know, almost like one of those coonskin caps. She's all wrapped around my head. And my other two are down here. We're watching this together. And all of a sudden, Mr. Rogers, in that wonderfully um, calming voice, says, uh, it's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your diplomas. They're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you. I'd sit there with those precious girls and I'd start bawling. At that point, I don't even know how old I was, early 30s, whatever, but I'd start to bawl. 
And you know, you know how your kids are. I don't know if you've experienced this, but my girls were like, they weren't used to seeing me cry that much, not in that context. Mr. Rogers, for heaven's sakes. And so they're looking up and they're seeing these tears come down. And you know, I remember my most sensitive daughter, Leanne, would she touch them to see if they were real, you know? And, and they would be, Daddy, are you crying? What are you crying for? Can I be honest with you, my brothers and sisters? I had no idea why I was crying. Looking back, no, I know that my grown man heart that still had a wounded little kid inside wanted to know if anybody would ever feel for me, God, let alone God, anyone else, like Mr. Rogers seemed to feel for me in the words of that poem. And then finally, um, 1990, I was 36 years old, on the way to another performance you know, you, you speak, blah, 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 blah. Everybody goes, oh, it's the greatest thing we ever heard. And on the way home, I came within a gnat's eyelash at the intersection of 94 and Allard on the east side of Detroit of taking my own life. Because with a head full of knowledge about the Bible and about God and about doctrine and about even his love, inside, I was an empty wasteland. And isn't it amazing? That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 at the pinnacle of Paul's theology where the first three chapters are all about our identity in Christ and what God really thinks about us. And at the end of that section, he prays this prayer. He says, I pray that all of you in the church of Jesus, all the saints, all the believers, all the brothers and sisters would be rooted. That's an agricultural term. It means just what it says, to be rooted, to drive your roots deep into, and to be grounded. It's an architectural term. It means to build the foundation of your life upon. I pray that you might be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, not Torah, not just the text, not doctrine, but in the love of Christ, the fact that you have a God who in Christ, he called at the beginning, he says, I pray to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a God who calls himself your Father, who through Christ has given you this great love. This isn't sidebar stuff, Paul says. This is it. If we don't ground and root ourselves here, nothing else matters. The enemy ha has us. If he can convince us that we're not loved, he's got us. He says, I pray that you might be rooted and grounded in that love of Christ. Then he says that you might know that love. Remember, remember the Greek is so messed up. Even the English reflects it in most texts. It has like dots and dashes because Paul's just all over the place because he's so excited about what he's talking about because it's that love that changed his life. He says that you might know that love which is high and wide and deep and long. And then he says that you might be, who's the you? Me and you, that you might be filled. You know what the Greek word for filled means? Filled. that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The opposite, the opposite of fullness is emptiness. And emptiness is a vacuum that cries out to be filled. So to the extent that I did not know the love of Christ, I had an emptiness that was crying out to be filled. Now in the neighborhood that I work in, um, a poverty-stricken neighborhood in one of the poorest cities, really the number one poorest city in the United States of America, folk tend to gravitate because there are very few resources. They tend to gravitate toward, you know, crack cocaine and heroin. And um, I mean, everybody smokes weed. Here's a lifesaver. Here's a joint. I mean, everybody smokes weed. Um, all kinds of illicit sexuality. Never filled. None of it can fill up what's that emptiness that can only be filled with the love of Christ. 
Um, for others who didn't grow up maybe in that kind of environment, although all of those things impact the middle class community as well, for sure, and it's, it's trans uh, um, uh, ethnicity, I mean, black, white, Latino, Asian, I mean, when you're empty, you're empty, and you're just looking for something to fill up that emptiness. You've got to have something to calm down that screaming emptiness, but some others who don't turn to those kinds of things will turn into things, turn to things that seem to be more socially acceptable but can never fill up the emptiness because when you try to make a good thing the main thing, it becomes a bad thing. So whether it's family or kids, you've seen that dad at the Little League Park just going, you get out there and get another. I want to tell you, that's not about the kid. That's about the emptiness inside that dad. He's trying to get that kid to fill up something inside that only the love of Christ was intended to fill. Is it good to love your kids? You bet, but not to try to make them fill up your empty heart. It could be money. It could be education. It could be success. It could be being a good Christian. None of it will fill up the emptiness that is intended to be only filled by the love of Christ. I've come to believe that most of the problems in the world today, if not all, and most of the problems in the body of Christ, racism, sexism, marital mess, splits in relationship, are, are about us trying to love. We're trying without knowing that we're loved. You can't give away what you haven't received. We're trying to love. We just don't know that we're loved. It's hard to even live the Christian life if we don't know that we're loved. I mean, I'm you and you're me, so, I mean, I'm not talking Christian Dallas Seminary head. I'm just a guy. And there are days I get so frustrated with my Christian experience. You think, you know, at the age of 63, you should be further along. And you think, if I can just listen to the right podcast, if I can just get a better interpretation of that passage... In fact, I just heard that the best commentary on blah, blah just came out. I better go get it because if I can just get the right content. In fact, I was saying in the morning service, you know when a new Bible translation comes out, the evangelical community runs that. They're like, now we've got the real word of God. <laughs> maybe if I can just get it autographed by the translator or the paraphraser or whatever, maybe I can now live my Christian life. I'll, I'll get over the hump of the emptiness and the mess. Look, I, I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, so I am not dis discrediting the word of God today, but can I tell you, this cannot fill up your emptiness. This is meant to point toward the one whose love can. So today, if we're frustrated with our Christian experience, I don't believe for a minute you just need another Bible verse. I believe most of us need to know how much more deeply we're loved than we ever thought was possible. You do a lot for somebody you believe in. You'll die for somebody who loves you. Anthony DeMello, the great Jesuit priest, said it like this. Your life begins not when you first begin to love God, but when you first begin to understand that he loves you. Now, this usually happens in the second service. First service, you're like going. You're like, you feel like you're like, you're like an Olympic runner running the, you know, 100-yard dash, you're like, eh. But the second service, you're going, and then as you try to get through your notes and you're going, why am I so tired and whatever. So I realize i got to turn the corner now and begin to land this plane because I have heard 
um, rumors, even up north in Detroit, about the trap door that you have here at Wood Creek. <laughs> and that um, nobody knows where those folks go. <laughs> but uh, some of them have been seen to have like singed hair when they get out of where that is. So I'm not trying to go there. So let's, can you just give me a few more moments of your, of your attention? If, if you're sitting here today going, is that me that doesn't know the love of Christ? Or maybe no 20%, 30 well, you know, if, if we could put a percentage on it that I, I've got this degree of emptiness. Is that, is that what I've been wrestling with all these years? Here's a few symptoms. And these symptoms, by the way, I didn't get out of a book. I got them out of my own life. Try this one on for size. You don't know who you are. Or today you secretly hate who you are. You don't really have an identity, so you become a chameleon in your life because you're not really sure who you are. Or maybe you really hate who you are. It's kind of a hard thing to admit, isn't it? But there are some self-haters here this morning. I mean, how do, how do you tell that truth? Who do you tell that truth to? Can you imagine coming in from the Wood Creek parking lot this morning? And uh, you get out of your car, got your Starbucks or whatever it is you guys drink down here. And uh, for your morning beverage, you're coming in. Somebody goes, hey, Chris, how you doing? Chris says, good, good. Hate myself, but otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> fine. Who do, who, do you, who do you tell that to? And yet there's some folks in here today, my, my brothers and sisters, if you don't know the love of the Father that helps you appropriately love yourself, as Jesus spoke so clearly, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we don't know that love, we're moving towards self-hatred, whether we call it that or not. How about this one? Do you find yourself tormented by voices from your childhood? Where we're first supposed to learn about and experience the love of the Father, instead we experience the lack of that love because even our parents can only give away what they've received. If they, didn't, if they don't know that love, they don't have that much love to give us. This is a little booklet that I got years ago called Love Letters Responding to Children in Pain. It was a group that reached out to kids who had nobody to talk to about their emptiness. So the kids could write them these brief little letters about their trauma that they tended to live stuck in, like some of us this morning. It's called Heart to Heart. Dear Heart to Heart, I'm so sad, this young man says. I'm so sad my dad is an alcoholic. I love him so much. I get mad when he breaks promises. And maybe if, he, if I would be really good, he would stop drinking. Imagine how easy it is to have that happen when you're 10 years old and then you're 40 and you're still looking at God going, did I do enough? Have I done enough? I, I, I could never please my dad, but I hope I'm doing enough for you. You call yourself my father. About this one, my name is Darren. I'm in the middle school. I'm in middle school. This is the worst year of my life. I hate school. My parents think I don't try, but I do. I started drinking. It's the only time I feel okay. Dear heart to heart, why did God make a dumb person? P.S. I am the dumb person. Some folks here today that live with that, that false belief inside our hearts that comes from childhood trauma where we were supposed to know love and we just didn't receive it. Dear heart to heart, I'm in the third grade. This is the second time because I failed last year and got kept back. It is embarrassing because my friends are in the fourth grade and everybody knows 
Dear heart to heart, I wouldn't feel bad about myself except that I'm fat and kids tease me. I can't help being fat. I eat less than anybody. It's not very fun to be ugly, if you want to know. I'll close with this one, or end this section with this one. Why, dear heart to heart, why did God make me like this? Pretty hard to hear the voice of the Father saying, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, when those voices are so loud inside of our head. How about those of us who are constantly looking for approval? I'm not talking about appropriate need for encouragement. I'm talking about like roll up your sleeve, inject approval like a good hit of heroin. Like I can't live without somebody telling me I'm okay. Could it be because we can't hear the voice of the Father telling us? much he loves us how about this one we become critical of others any critical spirits in here today and you might say well I've got good reason because there are some people here at uh, Wood Creek who are not obeying the word of God and somebody's got to criticize them or how are they going to change and I've got Bible verses to back up my views really Most of the time when we have a critical spirit that when you see someone, it just tends to run toward what they're not instead of what they are. It's usually because we carry around inside of us an internal critic. Speaking lies that our father, uh, the, the, the enemy who's called the father of lies speaks to our hearts. Lies like, I'll never amount to anything. I can't do anything right. I'm damaged goods. God is angry at me. I'm fundamentally unlovable. I'll always be afraid. I'm defined by my performance. No one will love me if I don't achieve something. If I am my true self, people will not want to be with me and be my friend. So I have to wear a mask all the time. Try to fake it. I'm on the outside looking in. I don't really fit with anyone anywhere. Or the big one again. Everybody else is loved, but not you. Can you imagine why we have a critical spirit when inside all day long the enemy is whispering that trash from hell into a place in our spirit that keeps us from being able to know the love of Christ and thus give that love away. Find yourself having difficulty in relationships. Is it, could it be because we're trying to get those close friends to fill up a place inside of us that only the love of Christ can fill up. I mean, our closest friends can be the icing, but they can't be the cake. I mean, if I went into detail today about how much I love my wife Carla and what a friend she is to me and how, how deep our love is for one another, even though we, we, we still tangle because we're human beings. We, we're not clones of one another. After 40 years, we haven't just kind of merged into the nirvana of of, of oneness to the point that she thinks something and I think something. Are you kidding? How boring would that be? So we, we, we still, you know, we, we still are very different people, but we are so deeply and passionately in love. But I got to tell you, that love, it, it took me years until I hit that crisis and then years to start living into it that she can't fill up that place inside of me that only Christ's love can fill up. And in our marriage, when I try to get her to fill up that place, our marriage immediately starts to disintegrate. Some of our marriages that are in trouble today, it's really not about what the other person is doing. It's about the emptiness inside of us 
we're continually trying to get filled by looking at that spouse that we love so very much, but they, we're trying to make them someone they were never meant to be. How about that feeling of never being at peace, constantly being driven? Whether it's at work, because we say the man makes me work 70 hours a week, maybe, but maybe it's the emptiness that causes you to work 70 hours a week. And you use the man as an excuse because deep down inside, you know if you slow down, if you slow down, the sediment of pain will start to rise up in your spirit. And to keep those voices at bay, you just keep on trucking. And then, of course, just the whole addictive piece. Anything that becomes something that we cannot live without, not something we just enjoy, something we think is a gift from God, something we think is good for us, even the good stuff, but it becomes something we cannot live without, becomes something that is addictive to us, and we're trying to use it, trying to make it fill up a place that only the love of Christ was intended to fill. Now, some of you are saying this morning, I suspect you're saying it because I said it for years. Hey, okay, all right, I got a few of those things, but I'm pretty doggone functional. Took a shower today, taught, taught Sunday school in the first service, told the kids about Jesus. My marriage isn't great, but, you know, we're hanging on. I'm a single person. I'm making it. It's good. Got a decent job, whatever. I'm functional. Look, can I just tell you this? Jesus did not come to earth to die. The, the death we just talked about, he didn't come to earth to die on the cross, to make us spiritually functional. He said in that Nazareth synagogue, when he opened the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 61, he said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. What if I told you today, those of us who are beginning to understand that maybe we've not experienced the love of Christ in the way that we, we hope that we can, that you don't have to live that way anymore. So finally, I guess I wouldn't be a very good teacher, maybe not even a very good person, if I didn't say something about the healing journey. And we'll talk more about that this afternoon and unpack a little bit more about this if you want, if you're interested now, first of all, when I share a couple of thoughts here, and we're going to close with an illustration that I think will be encouraging to you. I'm not giving you a list. I hate this. You know, some, some teacher somewhere, you know, unpacks an issue, and then he goes, now, or she goes, now, here's 10 things. And then you just go, man, I was starting to feel so free, and now you just loaded me down with 10 things. I, if I go to the Christian bookstore and I see a book, it could be about anything, but if it's Seven ways to, I don't buy it. I don't believe in those lists. I do believe in relationship. I believe in the power of relationship. I believe in the power of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who created us to heal in relationship. So let me say a couple of things about relationship. The first thing I'll say about relationship is, what if today, you'll see this on the screen, what if today you simply got honest with yourself about your need to heal and the fact that your get-or-done Christianity where you're just trying harder, you're gritting your teeth, you're reading more Bible verses, you're getting involved in more Bible studies, you're just working harder, you're doing more. It's, it's leaving you dry, man. One step forward, three steps backwards. What if you got honest and said, I think maybe this morning that that's not the way it was ever intended to be. What I'm really looking for is the love of Christ.
for me. What if we start there? Just tell the truth. Jesus said the truth, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. What would it be like to have courage today to just say, man, he's talking about me. That brother's lived my life. And to begin to believe you don't have to live that way anymore. To begin to believe that maybe to know the love of Christ is to unleash you in the context of community to reach a world that will not be reached until the body of Christ receives the love of Christ because we can't give away what we haven't received. What if that became the reason you get up in the morning? When you get up in the morning, you didn't look and see the Ten Commandments. For years, I got up and I opened my eyes and there was the list. Do this and be a good Christian. What if, what if this is the day when we get honest and said, I can't live that way anymore. I've been trying to live that way. It's been death. I want to get up in the morning and see my Heavenly Father sitting on the edge of my bed saying, I've been here all night long. Really? Yeah, I don't sleep much. So I've been here because you're my son. You're my daughter. Take my hand. Let's start our day. What about just starting by getting honest? And then here's a relational piece. What if you took that honesty and took it toward your heavenly father and asked him to begin to heal you? My daughters, I mean, if you've got, I, I mean, I love my girls. My girls are powerful. They're strong. I hope this doesn't sound disrespectful, but they cried a lot when they were growing up. And so there were tears everywhere in our home and in our driveway and in our backyard and on the swing set and the church and whatnot. So my, my, my especially my, maybe, maybe my most sensitive daughter, I don't know. I said that she was in the first service, but let's just say she's very sensitive. She would be afraid of ants. Not her aunties, ants, A-N-T-S. And so she would see an ant and come running at times. Uh, and depending on how many ants and how big they were, she'd come running and come up into my arms and begin to pour that pain onto my chest with her tears. And by the way, um, my daughter's a therapist today. So <laughs> what we realize now, back then we're going, what's wrong with you? But it was just it was the early signs of her sensitivity of spirit. So be careful. Don't judge your kids. Just realize there might be some budding something there that you think is looking pretty weird, but it's really some good stuff. So she would take those tears and pour them out right here. And I would just hold her. I mean, honestly, to even think about those days today, I just wish I could go back for one day. Not that I want them to cry, but I want to hold them. And then they would get done crying. She would get done crying and almost push me away like, what are you holding on to me for? And, and then she'd go off. Where did she leave her tears? On her father's chest. And where did she get the courage to go back out and face a world of ants? From the love that her father had for her pain when she was struggling with ants. How do you view your God? Is he like your spiritual coach that's tried, just trying to knock down another tenth off your spiritual 40 time? And we wonder why we don't want to do quiet times when this becomes some kind of a spiritual sports manual. Where can I get instructions about how to be better, be stronger, have bigger biceps, how to win the race? 
Or is he just your spiritual instructor trying to give you better content? Or is he your spiritual cop trying to keep you out of trouble? Or if you get in trouble, he's got to put you in time out. Somebody does. What if Paul was telling the truth when he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear again under bondage, but he's given us the Holy Spirit of adoption that causes our hearts, that would be your heart and mine, to cry out, Abba, Father. The word being an Aramaic term, Yoyakim Yermias uh, taught us this years ago, probably the kind of word that was so intimate that a, a little one-year-old Hebrew boy or girl would call their daddy in Aramaic, Abba, it'd be the first word they'd say to their father, Abba. And Paul basically says this morning, he's all kinds of things. So he's, a, he's our creator, he's our king, but he invites us to primarily relate to him as sons and daughters with our daddy. What if we took the honesty we began to have with ourselves this morning and began to pour it out to him? That day I came back from almost taking my own life. I came into my home. My three daughters were there in bed. My wife was there. She didn't know what was going on. She was in bed. And I remember crying out to my Abba before I even knew he was my Abba and just said, you've got to help me because if you don't, I'm lost. What good father will not meet us in that cry and begin to walk us home toward his arms? Finally and lastly, what if those two ways of being began to open our heart up to the healing love that's right here in the body of Christ? You know what the neurobiologists tell us today? That there's a place in our right brain, and if there's any neurobiologist today that I don't say this right, catch me in the foyer later so you can correct me, but... I read a neurobiological textbook, if you can believe it. Somebody gave it to me. I really am a nerd, i got to tell you. And uh, I couldn't read all of it because it was too technical, but this is what I got, that when we're unloved, it literally does register in a, in a place in our brain that wounds us in our right brain. And by the way, you can feel those experiences of unlove as early as the third trimester in the womb. But you know what the neurobiologists, the scientists say? You know how we can be healed from the wounds of unlove? You're going to be shocked. By being loved. So when Peter, we shouldn't be surprised when Peter says in 1 Peter 4, when he writes the churches in Asia Minor, he says, the end of all things is at hand. First, pray like crazy. But then he says, above all things. You know what the Greek word for all, above all things means? You haven't learned any Greek this morning? Above all things, above all things, love one another passionately and fervently because that love that comes from Christ through us to one another will heal a multitude of sins. There's all kinds of things that the body of Christ gives us and that we need from the body of Christ. But we come primarily turn toward one another and be healed by the love of Christ that's first cycling toward us that we give to one another. That love is the most powerful commodity in the universe. And nothing that the enemy can bring against us can keep that love from healing us and setting us free. I'll tell you this one last story before I do this final illustration. I remember early on in my second church, a lady came down front said, why don't you go to see my ex-husband in the Macomb County Jail? He's getting ready to go to prison. 
He's a very violent man. He's a rapist. Um, and I want you to try to help him find Christ. So I went. I sat down. It was a contact visit. And he came out. He was all manacled up, tatted up. Um, I'm a fairly big guy myself. Um, although over the years, it, some of that bigness has kind of shifted down <laughs> here. And I'm, I'm holding my stomach in. You have no idea how hard it is to hold your stomach in for 30 or 40 minutes at a time. <laughs> so I'll look different outside. I'm just going to tell you because I will have let go. But um, I, I don't think I knew how to share Christ with somebody in prison. I brought my Bible. I opened it up. I tried to read from the Gospel of John. I had just almost taken my own life. I had just started to experience the love of Christ myself. Just in the early stages of saying, he loves me. He loves me. It started to heal me. And I'm sitting there, and I can tell he's saying, get that Bible out of my face, homeboy, because I am not having anything to do with what you have to say. He didn't say it. I just knew it, so I closed the Bible. And I sat there, and I was like, Lord, what do I do? And I started to cry. There's no reason for me to cry except for the love of Christ. I got up from behind that table. I really did this spontaneously. It was almost like I was out of body. I went across around the table. The guy stood up, still manacled. I put my arms around him. Okay. I got real close to him. I kissed him on the cheek. <laughs> Rule number one, when you do prison ministry, you don't be kissing folks on the cheek. <laughs> don't be kissing folks on the cheek. Then I leaned up into his ear. <laughs> and I whispered to him, I love you, bro. Then I backed off, and he shuffled out. I went out in the parking lot, and I went, what did I just do, you idiot? Why didn't you take notes in that Dallas Seminary class about how to witness to prisoners, you know, in prisons? Couldn't you just shake his hand and say, God loves you, has a plan for your life, or whatever? My friend Dan, became my friend, went back into his cubicle and said, what just happened to me? And then he said, whatever that was, I've got to have more. And the love of Christ began to heal that hardened criminal to the point that he got sentenced to 14 to 42. Ten years later, he trusted Christ, walked out the rest of his sentence, 18 or eight more years without one major ticket, and landed in our church where he began to serve Christ with us some years ago. The power Look, when I, when I say open our heart to the healing love of the body of Christ, well, isn't that sweet? This is not sweet. This is either true or we're done. Because another sermon is not going to radically do for us what we want. The love of Christ will heal us and set us free. So sorry I made your baby cry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I love you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> It's a little girl, too, see? <laughs> so what I'd like to do, I'm going to close today with a, uh, in the Jewish community, what I'd like to do is to take some of that love and give it to each of you individually just as a brother. That's what I really want to do. I want to pause time and come around to each of you and just say, tell me your story. Would you trust me enough to tell me your story? I told you peace of mind. Tell me yours. And believe that the Matthew 18, when two or three are gathered together, Jesus said, I'll be there. Doing what? Healing us. That he'll meet us and he'll begin to heal us. 
there's no time to do that. So I want to do something that I think will touch us all in that way about the healing love of Christ. I want to do a Jewish Sabbath brief blessing prayer over a brother who I'm going to call my son. And um, on, on Jewish Sabbath, to this day, a father will bring his sons and daughters to him at the beginning of the Sabbath meal, and he will pray a specific blessing over them. So I've been praying since I got back into the sanctuary this morning about who um, I should do this blessing with, and I think it's you, son. Now, you don't have to do this. Would you be willing to let me bless you? Come. What's your name? Daniel? Come on up, son. And we're going to come up here, and we're just going to sit down here because the camera can't get us down um, close to the front where we, you can just take a seat. How old are you, Daniel? This will work then. You want to turn your seat? On well, the first service, I prayed over a 58-year-old man, which means I would have been five when, when he was mine. But Daniel, um, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a blessing. I'm going to speak a blessing to you, and then I'm going to pray, pray a blessing over you. And what I want you to do this morning as we close, because this is the last thing, is I'd like you to think about, first of all, what if you'd ever received any kind of blessing like this? What if you knew that every time you got with the body of Christ, you're going to receive some kind of, maybe not this formalized, but some kind of loving affirmation from a brother or sister in Christ? What, what would that be like if you'd ever received something like this one time? How would it have begun to heal you? How would it have begun to set you free and connect you with the love of the Father who loved you so very much? And secondly, what would it be like to begin to believe that God, as our Abba, is blessing us like this every moment of every day of our lives, trying to draw us home more deeply into his arms of freeing love? So, Daniel, right? My son, can I tell you what a blessing it was the day you were born? I can remember the doctor saying, you have a son. And I'd already had three daughters, and that would have been great if I would have had six more. But, oh, my goodness, how thankful I was that God gave me you, Daniel. And what I want you to know, son, is that in that moment when I saw you, you were just, you were just laying there. The umbilical cord hadn't even been cut yet. I've never loved you more nor less than I loved you right there. And this is the amazing thing. You hadn't done a thing yet. You hadn't performed at all. Now, you might say that you made it down the birth canal, but you really didn't have much choice about that, son. <laughs> so I want you to feel this for me on this Sabbath evening. I just loved you because you're my son, just like I love you today. And back in the day when you were playing in the band and you made second chair, you might have looked out and thought that my smile was about how I loved you more because you made it to second chair. Daniel, it's just not true. I was really glad you were happy. And I love the way you play the clarinet, but I didn't love you more because you were second chair or 10th chair or no chair. I just love you, son. And you might have thought, 
when early in the early days when you were in like tenth chair and you were squeaking the heck out of that instrument, you know, during concerts, and you might have not wanted to look out at me because if you looked out at me, you might have thought that I would have been ashamed. Not so, son. Not so. I would have been sad because I know you would have been embarrassed, but my love for you would have been just exactly the same because I don't love you because of what you do. I just love you because of who you are and you, Daniel, are my precious son in whom I am well pleased. Now look, I know out there, it's not very safe. There's a whole lot of I love you if or I love you because or I just don't give a care about you at all. But I want you to know this Sabbath evening And I'll repeat this next Friday, Friday after that, Friday after that. I want you to know that whether you become the next president of the United States or whether you do some time or something in between, it's not that I'm going to sign off on all your behaviors. That wouldn't be very loving. Some things hurt us. So I'm not going to be really happy about stuff that hurts you. But no matter what you are doing or who you are becoming, You need to know that I will always love you. Nothing can ever change that because you, Daniel, are my beloved son. I love you with all of my heart in the days to come. You ever doubt it, you look over your shoulder. I'll be there. So may the Lord bless you, son. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And may the Lord give to you my son of his deep and sweet and everlasting peace. Amen. My Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will take this moment, this truth about your great love, and draw sons and daughters more deeply into your arms. That one who might be there this morning saying, there's really nothing here for me. I've gone too far. I've been too long out there in the far country. God, it's a lie. May your Holy Spirit draw each of us today into a place where we are beginning to hope against hope that you're a God who is our Abba and that you really do love us with all of your heart and it's that love that will fill us and set us free in Jesus' name.